Hi, and welcome to my podcast series, The New Abnormal, which aims to make sense of our COVID-19 world today and tomorrow. I'm Sean P. Lodishenesi, researcher, author, and speaker from Brand Positive. As a researcher, I've spent 20 years conducting ethnographic interviews on global projects. Along the way, I've been lucky enough to have met some amazing people, from psychologists to activists to creatives, some of whom I'll be talking to in this series. I'm also the author of The Post-Truth Business, which focused on trust, empathy and privacy, while my second book, Influences and Revolutionaries, looked into innovation, behavioural change and the climate crisis. So, I hope you enjoy the interviews, and if so, please tell your friends, leave a rating and watch out for our other episodes. Now, without further delay, let's crack on with today's podcast. Today, I'm really pleased to be joined by Michael Cohen. He's a development psychologist and the president of the Michael Cohen Group in New York City, who has a great international reputation. Part of this is due to his immense experience at dealing with crisis, ranging from Chernobyl to the two World Trade Center attacks in 1993 and 9-11. Therefore, at the start of this podcast, I'm going to ask him to talk in detail about how, in the aftermath of the 9-11 World Trade Center attacks, he counseled the New York City mayor on the effect of public trauma and advised on hugely impactful actions that were then taken. We'll then link this to all things COVID-19 related, along with all things business related. So we'll be discussing his theory and approach to society individuals coping as different from society and individuals recovering. Finally, Michael has taught at the Yale School of Management and at City University in New York, and he holds a PhD in psychology. So, Michael, welcome. Thank you very much, and I really appreciate um, the invitation to participate. It's it's a privilege and a pleasure, Sean. Thank you. <laughs> no, fantastic. And uh, Michael, obviously, we left uh, met sort of uh, years ago. In fact, just after nine eleven, when I was uh, I was in New York, and you were telling me about the uh, the extraordinary activity that you uh, that, that you got up to then. So perhaps I suppose just as a way of starting this, because it was so fascinating. Um, just, uh, yeah, let's go through, that, go through that again. Tell the listeners exactly what you got up to and the impact that it had. Uh, absolutely. Uh, I'm going to start a little bit before that. I think the context will help understand, mm-hmm. uh, the listeners understand what, uh, how I came to that, um, to, to, to play that, that role in this New York City's recovery. Uh, I'm a psychologist. I was uh, a therapist as a, as a young psychology a psychologist. Um, and, uh, and I've been privileged to, 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 to be a psychologist in a variety of areas. Uh, I'm a developmentalist. I'm an education psychologist. I'm a clinician. And I've been a research psychologist for over 30 years. Um, after uh, some years of being a therapist, I um, I joined a, 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 a company doing global strategic communications, the Sawyer Miller Group. Uh, and during my time there, which was the late 80s to the, to the mid-90s, um, I was, uh, we, we had some work in Kiev after the um, fall of the regime. And I, on my own, actually conducted the first uh, mental health uh, needs assessment for mental health workers um, in Kiev who were 
uh, still some years later, uh, dealing with the, the, the psychological and emotional fallout from Chernobyl. Um, and not long after that, in 93, there was the first terrorist bombing of the, of the World Trade Center. Um, and, you know, for our listeners' edification, the theories about trauma and how individuals recover from trauma and uh, the diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder are all historically very, very recent. And uh, there was a brilliant psychiatrist, um, uh, Robert J. Lifton, who had been working with Vietnam veterans, and uh, he, he kind of was the first to um, come up with the idea of PTSD. And then there was a, a equally brilliant uh, psychiatrist in uh, Boston, um, Judith Herman, who wrote a seminal book called Trauma and Recovery. So I was um, I, I was tasked with coming up with a communication strategy for the reopening of the first World Trade Center. And uh, it, had, it was not long after I had been a therapist full time. And I made use of what I uh, had learned about how individuals recover from trauma um, in relationship to coming up with a public uh communications campaign. And I created a model which was very well received and we used at that time. And um, uh, I was awarded a, a global award for that model. Uh, I don't mean to sound arrogant, it's just what, what happened. And Yeah, um, amazing. Um, and so then fast forward to 9-11. Uh, and um, uh, I, was, I was doing some work for the New York City Board of Education uh, on a completely different topic. My, my, my life has been uh, greatly devoted to working with children, education, the use of media for productive use, and, uh, and just the children and families' well-being in all domains of life, entertainment, uh, as consumers, as, as students, as, um, as you know, future citizens, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and... Uh, I was, um, but I was asked to um, to help on the 11th, actually, with uh, with the city's response to the terrorist attacks, um, because my work from '93 had was was known, and um, uh, I was I was uh, you know really privileged to to participate in the following ways. I was the uh, the senior consultant to the, the administration, you know, including the mayor on. Uh, the, the emotional and psychological fallout and and, uh, and and how to respond to that from the terrorist attacks. Uh, I was a senior consultant to the Department of Education. This was over, you know, 1.2 million children um, yeah. uh, uh, um, as, as to how to respond. And I also uh, was principal investigator on a study of was almost 10,000 children on the mental health effects of crisis and the terrorist attack on, on children's uh, mental health. Um, so it was, uh, it was a really seminal moment in the city's life and seminal moment in, in my life. So, um, uh, so very quickly, uh, um, I, I can take you through the model that I created in 93 and the model that was used mm. again, September 11th. And I think that I presented to you when we first met, um, yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, it's, um, I don't mean to make it overly simplistic, but there are, what, what we understood is that uh, the recovery from trauma is, um, the stages of recovery from trauma is universal. Uh, and um, although the traumatic event may be quite different, uh, the, 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 how we recover from trauma has, has its stages, uh, you know, kind of like how the stages of grief was, um, you know, were, were identified earlier by Cooper Ross. And, um, and there are conditions for recovery, and the conditions mm -hmm. are uh, 
one, a trusted voice, um, someone who's going to give, who you believe is giving you the honest, you know, uh, an, an honest uh, uh, appraisal of everything. Um, there is the need for a trauma story. So if you uh, imagine, you know, you're in an automobile accident, someone hits you from behind, your car gets knocked off to the side of the road, and you come out and you say, what happened? So it's really the observer who can tell you what happened, because you often don't know mm -hmm. what happened. Right? Um, so a trauma story has a, you know, it's literally what happened. It has a beginning, it has a middle, and it has an end. And uh, for productive recovery, one wants the end to not be, you got hit from behind, you know, you get hit from behind, the car's on the side of the road, you're all safe. Um, mm. the, the guy who hit you is safe. And, uh, and you know, there are, there are, uh, uh, emergency services coming to help you and your family, you know, uh, get past this accident. Um, and, uh, and, and usually often the person who's in the middle of who, who's been the victim of a traumatic event is, is, is often the last to know what happened. Um, the third is uh, through the trusted voice to have an honest appraisal of your safety. And this is critical um, because you, one cannot recover until there's a subjective experience that you that the traumatic event or the crisis is not going to reoccur. And uh, this mm. is important for understanding the difference between recovery and coping. And the last uh, condition is whatever your personal uh, experience was, your personal biography, that you share the event, uh, you share the trauma, the traumatic experience with others. So um, in America, uh, there is a, a really an extraordinary organization uh, called Mothers Against Drunk Driving, which was started some years ago by a mother who lost her teenage uh, son in a drunk driving accident. Um, and uh, there are, you know, basically two ways one can respond to that. You can get withdrawn into your own grief and pain, or you can have that grief and pain and also say, well, I'm going to, you know, move forward and try to start an organization so that others don't go through what I went through. Mm. And um, it might seem intuitive, Sean, but what we have from research data is that those who uh, have their own, you know, biography and, 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 um, you know, traumatic aftermath, uh, but who in, in, connect themselves to others uh, have a much better rate of recovery. Um, and uh, so those are, those are the basic conditions uh, for recovery. But the primary condition that I'm concerned with here in COVID-19 is that the event not reoccur. If it's not going to reoccur, what we're, in, what we're involved in is a condition or a situation where we're coping. So, um, you know, at the risk of, uh, you know, of, of using bad examples, uh, you know, or terrible examples, if, if there's a, if, if you're 14 years old and you have a father who's alcoholic who, uh, who, who gets drunk on Saturday nights and beats you, um, until you can get out of the house, you know, or, to, or until your father is, uh, you know, is, is, stops doing what he's doing, you're coping with the situation. You're figuring ways in which to live with this until you can leave home at 16 or 18. Um, mm. uh, and, um, and that's quite different than recovering because in coping, this, the, the traumatic event, uh, you, your subjective experience is that it can reoccur and probably will reoccur. So mm. um, my experience uh, when we first met was that there was a cultural shift, at least in the U.S. after 9-11. And that cultural shift was we went from a society in recovery to a society of coping, meaning that mm -hmm. Americans in their perennial 
a strange optimism, right? Anything that terrible happened was always seen as a one-time event that was going to recede quickly into the, into the, uh, you know, into the receding past and that we were recovering from all events. Uh, although these events could easily reoccur, uh, this kind of, uh, you know, unbridled, um, and, and sometimes insane American, uh, optimism, um, was that it, it's not going to reoccur and we can recover from it. After 9-11, mm. uh, the, the immediate events, the, the anthrax attacks, there was a plane crash in New York, um, the ongoing threat of terrorism, uh, you know, and, and followed through by all kinds of events. And then the, the 2008 terrible recession, this was no longer, I think there was a really huge psychological shift um, for Americans that uh, we're no longer in a situation where events are not going to reoccur. And, and we're coping from them. So um, let me take a breath and uh, yep. get to the next thought. Um, so what happens, what's happening here, I'll, I'll fast forward to COVID-19, is we are in a really, so, so I was involved in, you know, there's mental health uh, needs assessment Chernobyl in, in 1993 and 9-11 and other crisis situations. And we find ourselves with COVID-19, which um is has really unique features to it, which if it's okay, I'd like to, you know, try to identify. Yeah, yeah, please do. Um and you know, you could and you know, I, I um there is a line from Confucius that is echoed in uh the, the Jewish Talmud, <laughs> which says, All wisdom comes from calling things by their correct names, which I've tried to always live by. <laughs> yeah. So I'm gonna start there. So, you know, you hear metaphors about COVID-19, uh, you know, it's a war, it's a storm, it's et cetera. And I've really thought about this a good deal. And I think uh, accurately, it's both. Um, and, uh, you know, we we are, you know, in the U.S. particularly, and I've worked in over 35 countries, but I'm going to focus on the U.S. for right now. Uh, it's a country where, you know, it's, uh, and some of the these dynamics are now very, very apparent. It's a country that's that has benefited and been cursed, I think, by its isolation. So we have we have not really had a war on our own uh, territory, with the exception of you know Pearl Harbor attack and nine eleven. Yeah. And the last war here was a civil war. It was a civil war. So the wars were always elsewhere. Even though our our young men went and died there, uh, it didn't occur here. Um, and. Um, uh, the conditions of a war is it doesn't happen in one day. You know, you are, you know, you can imagine the, the, the absolute tragedy in Syria where it's ongoing, right? And, um, one is absolutely coping and living in a, a wartime situation where the, the war is taking place where you live. I mean, I, I you know, the, uh, I've seen a lot of media in my life, of course, you know, it's the London Blitz, it's World War II, it's World War One. it's, you know, it's mm. Japan, it's, you know. Um, which Americans are not used to, uh, but there is um, uh, so COVID nineteen has many of the conditions of a war, which is uh, the devastation goes on, and uh, we're not sure when it's going to be over, uh, and uh, you know one can predict many many things, but uh, it really is an uncertain future. But the the trauma um, goes on, you know, and uh, an assessment of the trauma changes daily. Really. However, we don't see the devastation outside our windows. I live in Brooklyn Heights. It's a beautiful neighborhood right over the, right across from Manhattan, right off the Brooklyn Bridge. And it's a protected area. It's historically zoned. And I, it, it's so quiet and pristine and beautiful. Um, so one doesn't see the devastation out right outside. Although I live just a few streets from the nursing home 
that had the highest rate of deaths of, of uh, nursing home patients of any place in New York City. And there's a mm. refrigerator truck outside where they, you know, where, where, where you can see the dead bodies being being uh, hauled into. So, uh, and wow. I have many friends who work on the front lines in hospitals where the devastation has been, you know, just ongoing and really, really awful. So, um, it's an interesting war because we hear about the devastation, but not a lot of people actually see it firsthand. Right? Mm. Um, the second condition is that it's, uh, you know, it, it is like a storm in that it's natural, right? Um, and uh, but most storms, you know, in the U.S. suffers all kinds of natural disasters, but most storms mm -hmm. include or you know natural events like earthquakes. Right? They occur, and uh, you know, you come out of your tornado storm cellar. Uh, after being in there overnight, and you look to mm. see what's the devastation to your community. And it could be terrible, it could be not terrible. But the storm is over. The tornado is there and it's gone and, uh, mm. and is not likely to reoccur. Um, and there's usually a, a uh, you know, an, an immediate um, period of time called recovery when you're looking to see if there, there are any victims that can be, you know, who, who are still alive. Right? This happens after an earthquake as well. And then after some time, that's gone, and then it's a recovery period. So mm. what's interesting about this is that it's a natural occurrence. However, um, we're not, you know, we, we, we are, uh, you know, it, it's not over, and we can't see the devastation. Um, and we are kind of recovering and, I mean, it's kind of rescuing. And, uh, you know, at the same time that we're, you know, we're coping with this ongoing situation. Mm. The thir third level, or I'm not sure what number I'm up to, but I think the third level, <laughs> yeah. what's unusual about this is that the way we are protecting ourselves and each other goes, and I'm a psychologist and a human being, goes against every cell, every human cell in our body. Right? We cannot be with the ones we love when they're sick. We can't be with them when they're dying. Um, we, uh, you know, my daughter who lives in another city would love to be with us. She's in her 20s. Um, but is afraid to come and inadvertently affect my wife and I. So it's, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, everything that's, we, we are social animals. And, uh, but, you know, the, we, we uh, you know, I, I can't even imagine the pain and heartache of knowing that a loved one is in the hospital, you can't visit them, and they mm -hmm. might die alone, um, and they have no one there to comfort them, and, and you mm -hmm. yourself can't be there. So, so the the natural instinct to care is, um, in certain ways, is kind of really disrupted. Uh, mm. And secondly, I'm not sure how it is elsewhere, but in New York, uh, the immediate you know grief period after a death is kind of disrupted. People can't literally cannot get dead bodies to a to a funeral home to be either mm. cremated or buried. They're stacking up. Um, and there's a wait time and there's funerals cannot be held. Uh, and this is, you know, it, it, it's, 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 if someone had said to me, Sean, three months ago, this is going to be the landscape that there would be hospital tents in central park and people would not be able to, uh, you know, the, 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 the waiting list for, uh, for funeral homes to, uh, you know, to, to, to prepare dead bodies is going to be weeks away. It's, I would have said, this is, it's a cliche at this point. This is a really bad grade B TV made dystopian science fiction film. Um, yeah, yeah, sure. But it's it's kind of happening. So, um, so I, I've been very focused. You know, I I, I work uh, 
in research. I do consulting. I am a part-time director of counseling at a small college here in New York City, and I've been doing volunteer crisis counseling as well. I've been mostly involved in helping people create, have coping, positive coping mechanisms because recovery is on, on a societal scale is impossible. However, there are people also re- who are recovering from personal loss. So they're, they're in a situation where they're coping with the ongoing crisis, but they've lost a loved one um, or, uh, or they're in fear of, of losing a loved one. So it's a very psychologically complicated situation. Mm. I mean, it's just extraordinary. I know, I mean, one of the many ways the whole thing has been described as being, you know, the biggest psychological experiment in history. Um, and we, and with no real hard data that one can draw on to um, to explain where we are, because although we've been through appalling incidents um, in the past from things like 9-11, uh, whatever, or we've been through, you know, enormous um, economic downturns, or we can look to public pandemics like the Spanish flu or whatever, there's never been something quite like this one that combines a lot of those things together. Um, it just seems um, absolutely unbelievable. Um, and I think certainly one of the things that certainly I've been looking at in order to try and make some sense of where we are at the moment is to naturally read everything in sight. And um, I think sort of, you know, one of the sort of the, the, the neatest, should I say, ways of putting it so far is... Um, I think the other day in the Times they said that uh, you know uh, tomorrow's um, sort of citizen is likely to be poorer, uh, nervous, obsessed with social distancing and hygiene, and that's as about as far as they can go. And it seems certainly from where I'm sitting to be a very simple, clear statement. Um, to go back to your Confucius angle, calling yeah. things by their correct names. <laughs> yeah, I, um, um, I yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead, go ahead. And then I said also that angle that I, I think you know again we've been seeing. Um, endless reports of people just really waiting for this to get back to normal and yet just like this podcast and the else everyone's going well you know a lot of people are saying there is no bridge back to where we were you know we have clearly moved into a different realm here into a different sphere of existing um some things will be the same without doubt but a lot won't be the same and i mean in business i mean today unilever bit and big announcement saying that you know they reckon that sort of you know several of the sort of uh, new consumer behaviour changes that have been observed um, are likely to become permanent, and they're adapting accordingly. So, where they're saying we are into new territory. Well, I'm of uh, it's really interesting what you're saying, and very important. And I'm of two minds about it, actually. So let me try to. Um, and I'm not sure I've resolved this. On one hand, I think the outcome of the storm and this war is already determined, uh, and that is, you know, human beings will win. You know, we always have. Um, uh, whether it's been the bubonic plague or the Spanish flu or the polio epidemic. And uh, I was born in 1950. It was the year of the polio epidemic. So I, I don't personally have memory of it, but it was pretty devastating. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, AIDS, I, I was uh, through that crisis. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, and all the other flu crises that, that we've had, you know, um, uh, swine flu and, and SARS, et cetera. And I lost a friend to SARS, actually. Um, and, um, but we will, we will prevail. There's, I think there's no question there. Uh, we will prevail for for a variety of reasons, you know, um, uh, and there's certain scenarios that I think, you know, lead to that conclusion. The question is how, what will the casualties, you know, what casualties will, will occur? Um, 
until we get there, you know, and, uh, you know, mm. some of the cliches, you know, the bubonic plague led, led to the Renaissance and, um, you, know, the, the, you know, the world went on after the Spanish flu and World War One combined. Um, mm. So I think, uh, you know, we, we will move forward and it's very difficult to know. Uh, I think it's it, what, what you're talking about earlier is just is brilliant and, and, and accurate as to the near future. Um, mm. But in the long future, human beings, so here's my other, you know, um, forgive the cliche on the other hand uh we have an extraordinary ability to forget so yeah um uh and uh you know after the 2008 great recession global recession there was a lot of talk oh it's going to enter a whole new era of everyone's going to be less greedy and understand not to you know engage in uh in wild speculation and you know and that didn't last very long sure yeah yeah you know um uh, so it's, um, I, I think there will be some, some significant changes, um, and, uh, you know, in the near future, and I can't say how that near, how long that near future is. Although I think this will be a longer near future than most other crises, because I don't think this particular crisis is going to be over for some time. So if, you know, so we'll, we'll get, uh, I, I know, you know, part of our agenda is to talk about brands and business. And, you know, we'd have some thoughts about that, but I think for businesses and for brands thinking this through, this is, as I said earlier, this is not coming out of the storm cellar and, and, and say, okay, now we're in a, in, in a new era. This new era is going to be, characterized by the ongoing crisis which is probably going to go on for at least another year or two mm. um and then yep. there'll be you know there'll be a period of um i'm sure a vaccine will be created and you know we'll, we'll figure out how to live with this uh, and then there will be a you know a, a near future period and then there'll be a longer future period so um mm. i think there's a several year near future uh period here which is really different you know and uniquely different than other uh crises and, and traumatic uh, situations that have occurred. I was not, mm. you know, I was not, I did not live in Europe after World War II, you know, um, and so it, I, I don't know how long, you know, it, what it felt like to, to uh, um, you know, for Europe to, to, to rebuild itself. Um, mm. uh, but, um, and I'm sure in different places it was, it was a very different experience. But, uh, you know, at some point that, that period ends and we're kind of rebuilt and let's, you know, we move forward. So it's a question of time, mm. I think. And um, uh, so, you know, and my, my summary statement would be uh, we'll, we will prevail and things will probably go back to m what we would imagine life was like before more than we might imagine. And uh, there will also be some significant changes. Mm hmm. I think it's interesting. One of the um, books I'm reading at the moment that has a really good um, view on this, not, to, not on today, but certainly like the environment we're in, um, the, the sort of the global situation we find ourselves in, um, written by the great um, environmentalist uh, John uh, John Elkington, uh, and his book um, Green Swans is saying that you know let's turn black swans green when he talks about the coming boom in regenerative capitalism. Something that he really goes on about there is or delves into, should I say, in a more eloquent way, is that um, this, in terms of COVID, isn't a black swan. 
um, mm-hmm. governments have been warned about pandemics um, for years and years and years. It is always on their top 10, if not top three list of things that could have a huge impact on society. And we would certainly do this. Um, and in many cases, governments just um, ignored it. Um, and, you know, stocks of vital supplies, etc., were run down. So he's saying, so this isn't a black swan, um, but let's turn this appalling incident um into something good from the perspective of things like you know we've all seen as well I think the first thing we all saw um as a sort of a as a good news story where once this started happening was um the one of the impacts of isolation um were and lack of traffic and all the rest of it and therefore you know, pollution lifting was the return of animals to cities so we saw you know, we all saw the images straight away you know you know dolphins in venice um and uh, all the rest of it and so and you know and smog lifting above los angeles people in india a- able to see the himalayas and there's a lot of talk of th- you know people had a sense that things weren't right before mm-hmm. but it, the difficulty of dealing with it seemed to be so enormous um that people just couldn't see a way through then obviously last year we had the huge impact of pressure groups like extinction rebellion it appeared to be you know, the most powerful and successful pressure group uh, of the modern era. Had Greta Thunberg, Person of the Year, you know, speaking at the UN, speaking at Davos, um, leading the way forward. So perhaps there's this also a notion of, yes, people in one way want to return to an area of stability, and that is normally going backwards. Um, but at the same time, they don't want to go back to exactly where we were, because a lot of where we were was just wrong. Absolutely. Um, I mean, you know, the, the obvious, uh, you know, irony of all this is that, it, you know, this tiny uh, virus, right, just knocked humanity on its ass. I mean, our hubris um, mm. you know, has been undercut and, uh, and all kinds of human attempts to, to undo the, you know, the unsustainable way we were living. Um, we're not all that successful, but <laughs> this virus really just... In, in, in one fell swoop and in a short period of time has, has knocked this all down. There is a psychological um, dynamic, which um, I've always lived with my, myself, which is if it hasn't happened to me, it's, 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 it's something abstract that won't happen. So when I was, yeah, a, yeah. when I was a kid, uh, there was a tragic fire in, the, in my hometown. Uh, I grew up north of New York City a little bit, um, where uh, 11 kids died in a fire. It was truly one of the most devastating, tragic events. So fire for me is not something that happens to other people. And um, my mm. friends and family think I'm nuts because I have fire extinguishers in the kitchen and when I, you know, and I, I held fire drills for my company uh, because it's not something that happens to other people. I have never been in a serious car accident. So in a strange way, serious car accidents, although I'm careful when I drive, you know, uh, it's still mm. something that happens to other people. Right? So mm. um, one thing about COVID-19, and I think world leaders, you know, they're, they're, they're unfortunately human beings as well, um, you know, suffer from this. And uh, although there's a lot of voices telling them you have to prepare for this pandemic, until it happens, you know, it's something like that this couldn't possibly happen here. I had a friend tell me, mm. a really intelligent guy um, who I just, you know, love like a brother, told me, the other day, you know, I honestly thought that this this could happen to the United States. This is the United States. This this couldn't possibly happen here. It was like people when when the one of the terrorists, uh, you know, the planes they hijacked hit the Pentagon. It was like inconceivable. You know, I, I you know, I, I was I'm not a kid anymore, but I somehow imagined that there was a mysterious secret bubble that would protect the Pentagon against any projectile <laughs> yeah. that was. You know, I was like, 
Oh my God, they actually hit the Pentagon. It's not invulnerable. So there, there are, um, you know, uh, just things we live with that I don't think we think about all the time. But what's, a, what's, what's impressive about COVID-19 is this happens, this is happening to everybody, whether they're denying it politically or not, or they're saying that they're doing a great job. Now. The reality is everyone's experiencing this. So this is no longer, pandemics are no longer something that happens to other people. And I think, mm. um, you know, if, if we go back to, you know, when I said things change and they don't change, after 9-11, there was yep. talk, well, no one's going to travel again, right? Well, we all traveled again, but the conditions were quite different. You know, you waited in line to, uh, you know, to, to, to go through metal detectors and, you know, and all kinds of, uh, you know, safeguards were put in place. But the world, we all got up and traveled again. So mm. um, just under different conditions. So, uh, and I think yeah. that represents a good model. I mean, we will, we will be social again. It's, it's who we are as human beings. We might do it differently. I might not be shaking hands with you the next time I see you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we will get together, I'm sure, and uh, you know, um, and we might be washing our hands a lot more. But uh, yeah, yeah, but we will be getting together. So, mm. yes, yeah, no, no hugging, right? I mean, for, I'm a hugger. Well, exactly. Sort of, as I know to my cost, uh, when uh, sort of uh, senior right. sort of meetings, uh, there we are, Michael. So fantastic. Yeah. Um, so, what about um, a different thing? And that is what, what uh, terms the sort of um, um, you say the, the, the impact on the tech companies. I mean, one of the things the Economist says in their latest report on, you know, the, the three big implications. You know, they talk about, um, you know, uh, one of them being uh, that um, tech is going to, or tech adoption and next generation tech adoption is just going to get faster and faster. So, uh, as in uh, the guy that invented Zoom couldn't believe his luck in terms of the fact that now um, everyone is now on Zoom desperately asking if anyone can see them and have they sort of uh, un unmuted their button. Um, so, you know, economists saying, uh, you know, huge tech adoption or uh, adoption uh, getting faster and faster, um, a shrinking of global globalization from the perspective of supply chains uh, becoming national rather than global, um, which is a huge impact on um, everyone. I think saw a stat today saying um, Apple have, I think, nine days now of inventory, which they've been effectively working on for a long time. And then they're just no more bits of stuff that go into Apple phones. And then the other one is um, a concentration of power. So both on a governmental level um, internationally, we're seeing governments becoming far more um, uh, centralized, but then also bigger companies getting bigger, mid-sized companies going to the wall and um, the smaller ones desperately trying to hang on. But certainly in terms of the tech lash that we saw until recently with, you know, that we can talk about... 2016 American presidential election and Cambridge Analytica and all the see that went on with the data scraping from Facebook data and hyper targeting. So you know the, the Silicon Valley had been public enemy number one ish for quite a while. Are we seeing um, that basically going and suddenly Silicon Valley um, re-emerging as everyone's best friend? It's a great, great question. Um, I think uh, tech is here to stay. You know. Um, uh, and the question is in what form and you know, how much power will be centralized and how it will be perceived. Um, uh, but I, I don't see, um, you know, big tech, no matter how powerful or strong the, the tech lash is, I don't see it going away. It's just too connected to 
uh, government. There's too much money and, you know, just too much money involved and and too much concentrated power. So, um, Mm. uh, you know, in the uh, Mike Myers, uh, you know, not long ago, uh, as Dr. Evil said he was going to run for president in the United States, um, uh, and that he was choosing the second most evil person on earth to be vice president, and that was Mark Zuckerberg. So it was, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> it was a good joke here in the U.S. Um, so for all of Zuckerberg's, uh, you know, whatever he's, however he's perceived, Facebook still remains powerful, and um, mm. uh, and Google uh, is, remains the number one search engine, and YouTube is the number one, you know, video uh, repository. Um, mm. so, uh, and the use of social media has increased. So I don't see that stuff going away. You may be, you, you said something that's really interesting, which I really hadn't thought about, which is how these companies are perceived might change radically. And we, and you know, um, how cohorts see them will change radically too. So, mm. um, I, you know, I work, my, my life is as, as a psychologist and researcher is primarily focused on, you know, very young children, uh, youth, adolescents, and young adults, um, and often with their use of media. And the, the 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 cohort range has just gotten narrower and narrower and narrower. And often, it's the 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 the, the predictive variable of what determines a cohort is what media they were native to. So, mm. um, uh, you know, there there there's uh, uh, you know, I did the first study. Uh, I think ever on young children's use of iPads when they, when they were, you know, put into the market in 2010, 2011. Um, mm. But now that's, you know, you know, and I was doing a study with three-year-olds and that was perceived as, Oh my God, three-year-olds are using it. And now wow. kids, kids at, you know, six months old are, are using uh, and, and younger are using touch mm. technology. So, um, so it's going to be very different uh, cohort. Uh, perception of of tech, I think, by mm. by what you know. Well, I, I think I'm, I don't want to belabor the point, but um, it's it's a very interesting idea. I, I don't, mm. you know, it, it's it's you know the the cliche is if this had happened ten years ago, fifteen years ago, we would we wouldn't be as connected as we are now. And uh, mm. for all the jokes about Zoom, it's really been a godsend, right? Or or whether mm. it's Zoom or FaceTime or Google Hangout or or Skype, it's it's just been a you know I'm I'm in touch with my sister who lives halfway around the world, with my daughter, and uh, you know I've been watching Tiger King with my daughter at night over Netflix. Um, and um, I don't know if Tiger King is a big phenomenon. And, oh, it certainly is, totally. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> but yeah, completely. Uh, yeah, this would have been impossible uh, some years ago. Yeah. So, so there is a um, you know, thank God for the, that this technology exists, and uh, uh, and and we wouldn't be able to be as connected with with our you know by, via business, to business to our families to our friends without. Yep, them. I think with the interesting angle or an interesting angle on that that uh, certainly I, I wrote about in the first book, and I think it's going to be a fascinating one to see how this plays out. Is that after we'd been through that whole data scraping thing um, and the Cambridge Analytica issue, and I mentioned the book, I gave. I was on a panel with um, um, uh, Michael Plough or whatever, um, uh, David Plough, who is Obama's campaign chief, and he gave a talk on how you know the Obama campaign had uh, scraped all the data they could from Facebook and effectively did exactly what Trump did, but in a smaller way um, mm-hmm. in, in the previous um, campaign. Um, uh, 
I spoke a lot. Of, it read a lot about privacy in that book, um, and the privacy debate has really exploded. I wrote about surveillance capitalism then, and then I think what we then saw, or one of the things we saw, was the growth and growth over the last couple of years of things like facial recognition. And a lot of that has been pinned on, for instance, um, the way the Chinese um, uh, government have been using facial recognition to uh, to uh, track um, people within the citizens citizens within the, uh, that country. And we've seen facial recognition being pushed out around the world, often with a real sense of pushback from um, particularly Western um uh, citizens, where the citizen is more powerful uh, than the state, as opposed to the other way around, perhaps in, in other countries like China. However, one of the things that's coming out of C19 is uh, is surveillance tracking from the point of view of being able to find out where we've been, who we've been with, should we have been exposed to COVID. So that issue certainly we're seeing over here in Europe of people now having um, willingly um, having uh, health um, organizations, um, you know, downloading apps from health organizations that will enable their phones to be tracked so they can then be warned if they've been in contact with, etc, cetera, etc, cetera, has huge implications when this is all dealt with um, or when we begin to live with um, COVID in whatever way we end up living with it, alongside it, accepting it, getting immune to it, whatever, with governments being normally very wary of taking powers back, will we be therefore living with um, tracking technology on our phones forever, for instance, in terms of another nail in the coffin of privacy? And so again, there's yeah, the impact no. on how we feel about those companies. You've said it very, very well. I mean, people are all over the world willingly giving up enormous amounts of, 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 of personal uh, privacy for the common good, you know, of, um, of, of, of tracking, uh, this illness. And, um, you know, here in the U S there's, you know, a, a phenomena of you know, demonstrations and big, big, um, pushback against, uh, state and government, uh, imposed, you know, quarantines and, and, and sheltering in place. And it's very complicated. It's very, very complicated because in the U S you know, what, what, what South Korea has done, I think would be, very difficult to do in the U.S., um, mm. uh, which is you know that, that kind of you know, tracking everywhere you've been and reaching out to people you've you've been in contact with through your cell phone data, which I'm sure has been quite effective in, in dealing with the disease. Um, but uh, you know it's it's a level of of trust and of willing or whether willing or not of the government having access to your every movement and every mm. you know whereabouts. Um, and you raise a very, very important issue. It's what happens when it's, you know, of, of course, it, it can be used for, you know, positive uh, purposes, but it also can be used for really nefarious purposes of, of um, you know, it's one of the most effective surveillance systems the world has ever known. I mean, the, the you know, mm. the one joke here is it's impossible to be a criminal anymore because everyone knows where you are all the time, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. So between closed circuit television and your cell phone, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's, you know, you, you, if you want to commit a crime, you have to do it digitally um, is the joke. So uh, <laughs> these, these are really, really, um, you know, important issues of what happens when the government has this information Um and, uh, you know, there's, there's a, there's, you know, a, uh, you know, there's also a, a uh, kind of a half joking, uh, thing that goes on here in the U S is they already have this. I mean, they're, they're, I hear people say this all the time is 
why protect my privacy? Because whatever they want to know, they already have ways in which to find it out. So, um, mm-hmm. so there's also kind of a, a, a kind of, I don't know, a resignation that our privacy is gone. And, um, mm. uh, and that really plays well into the hands of, of government control. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That whole issue of, um, yeah, you're saying so the criminals know where to hide, but basically nowhere, nowhere to hide for anybody from the point of view of sort of transgressing the state's version of acceptable behavior, right, whatever that right. acceptable behavior yeah. sort of uh, may be. Okay, what about just to move on, uh, just in the last sort of 10 minutes or so, and it's been great, Michael, thanks thanks so much. Um, So, you know, at the moment, uh, I mean, you know, uh, the, the, the sort of three things that I that I've been hanging this whole um, sort of issue on um, have been um, basically, as I put in the, in, in the um, uh, sort of, you know, in the podcast, you know, things around, you know, um, hope, community and resilience. When you look at those three things, I mean, do you think those, I feel free to disagree, um, are those three things that would be top of your list or would there be something else that would be the top of the, the top three No, I was very, buzzwords I was very impressed with that. I, I um and uh, no, I, I completely agree with that. Um, if I can make, you know, as we would say in a therapy session, abrupt transition back to business with that, if that's, okay. <laughs> um, if that's all right. Uh, Feel free. <laughs> um, I think it's going to look different, uh, though, um, of, of, you know, what kind of hope, you know, what type of community we're talking about and, and how resistance will manifest itself. So mm. um, in terms of brands and businesses, I'm trying to get back to that, if that's okay. Um, yeah, yeah. I think, uh, for example, given the financial devastation on a personal level, that uh, if a brand is based, if a brand's uh, sales um, is based on uh, disposable income, you know, in any demand, in any area, I think they're going to have a hard time. Um, yeah, that it's it's people are going to be spending their money. This is like what happened after two thousand eight. For some time, that they have so limited, so such limited resources that money will be spent, but it's going to be spent on really um, things that are absolutely necessary. Right? Um, mm. And uh, what's interesting, though, when you're going back to media, is that I've, you know, I do research. A lot of, uh, as you, it's what I've always admired about you, that uh, the research is done you know, ethnographically, you know, where people actually mm. live. And I am in a lot of houses and homes and apartments of people who really have very little money. And there'll be a 60-inch flat screen TV. And this is not a mm. critique of them. You know, mm. it's, um, uh, There was a great article written about what it meant to be poor in 1960 and what it means to be poor in 2020. Um, this was before the coronavirus thing. And in 1960, when you were poor, you didn't have a TV. Um, uh, but you had health care and you had education, but you, you, know, you might not have clothes. Right? And in 2020, if you're poor, you actually have access to media. You'll spend your money there because it's essential. Um, but you might not have food now, and but you certainly have clothes because clothing has become so incredibly inexpensive, right? And there's so much excess wow. extra clothes. So, um, and, and, you, and in the United States, you do not have health care. Right? So it's, uh, and, and education is unaffordable after public education. So it's, it's uh, you know, what it means to live in poverty in the U.S. Um, has changed, has changed mm. radically. Um, so I think, uh, you know, um, that that brands, uh, um, depending on you know what it is they produce, and and uh, whether they're de- whether they're seen as like essentials or com- almost commodities, 
or, yeah. um, or whether they are, you know, kind of luxuries at a small or large level um, are going to face a really tough time uh, for, mm. for a few years. And um, uh, so that's, I just wanted to get that thought out before, you know, before. We yeah. Did. Yeah. And then in terms of community, I, I do think, um, and I know I'm making the transition to the role brands can play. I think brands yeah. can play an enormous. So it, it wasn't gratuitous that I went through my, model of, of cope, you know, productive, what are the criteria for positive coping and for recovery? Yep. Because brands uh, can take a very um, good look in the mirror and say, is there any way we can play a role in any of those conditions? Are we a yeah. trusted voice? Can we help tell the trauma story? Uh, can we um, uh, provide a, an accurate assessment of safety? And can we help connect people to each other? And um, mm. brands are going to be, have to be really careful if they overstep and they try to do one of those things that just doesn't fit the brands. The, the, the antenna, the, the consumer antenna for nonsense and disingenuousness, I think, is, is more finely tuned than, than NORAD's uh, you know, system of knowing whether <laughs> nuclear missiles are coming to the U.S. Um, so it's, uh, uh, but I think brands can absolutely play a role there. And I, I after 9-11, I helped some media brands um, uh, like Disney. I said, you know, you could really help connect people to each other. You know, you're not going to be the trusted voice of, of or nor tell the trauma story. Um, mm. But you can absolutely be um, a place where, uh, you know, where where people share, you know, and, 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 are, and are not alone. So um, there are, uh, there's, there are, you know, I think brands need to do uh, a very careful kind of assessment of who they are, what meaning they have for their consumer and, and where they can go. And, um, uh, and anything they do uh, that, you know, looks like it's, or is, is for the benefit of the society. If it's self aggrandize, if it's used in a self aggrandizing way, advertising, it will undo it. Yeah. Yeah. I think the other day, one of the, that's fantastic, Mike, one of the, the sort of a trend which just said, we'll come out of it sort of kinder, but also fatter. <laughs> the point of everyone at home drinking heavily and uh, watching Netflix. Um, but look, Michael, it's fantastic. Uh, on a really fascinating, wide-ranging conversation that went from Confucius um, to McDonald's, um, absolutely brilliant. And I unfortunately have to report that at that point, as we were just about to uh, finish the interview, the uh, line from Mike's end uh, via Zancaster went down. So I'll have to finish this by myself purely by saying a massive thank you to uh, Michael Cohen I mean what an incredibly uh, fascinating individual he is um, for those of you who want to get in touch with him by the way his uh, website is uh, you can get him at uh, mcgrc.com uh, that is mcgrc.com and uh, obviously Michael's based uh, over in New York um, uh, what an, uh, a great guy and um, so that's it for this episode um, as with all of them I would say it'd be fantastic if you liked it and I hope you did please click the like button and um, even um, uh, obviously uh, subscribe to the podcast and please do tell all your friends about it so till the next time thanks for listening and uh, all the best bye